What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> let's just go ahead and get started, Lee. All right. All right. Let's just start it off formally, I guess. I'm Chase Winnegar, sitting down with Lee McClellan. How is everyone? Yep. Yep. Just the uh, two of us today, which is perfectly fine. Lee's got a few things that you want to go over, right? Yes, sir. You just got done talking to... Uh, just wrote a piece on uh, the upcoming dove season. Yeah. Talked to some of our biologists about it and uh, excited. I have uh, notes here. Well, actually, I had something I wanted to get to off the bat, so okay. I'll circle back around to that in one second. But I'll, I'll you can s- go if you want. Well, I also had written down what's coming up, and okay. of course, some of those things are deer, dove, uh, sandhill registration, mm-hmm. elk, squirrels actually in now, turkey season, archery is right around the corner. But uh, of course, what's coming up, one of those things is dove, so we should definitely knock out what you have, because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure you got good info. But also, off the bat, wanted to touch deer eggs really quickly. Mm-hmm. Just because a lot of people are confused about what's going on. So I thought, and you know, without going into any detail, because honestly, me and you can't really say 100% what, mm-hmm. what, what is going to happen. Yeah, but we could probably just give a status update as far as what the situation is right at this moment, right? Yes. So what, what, what do you have? What do you know? Well, what I know is uh, some things passed and some things have not. Um, and we're still waiting for final resolution before we, we can proceed forward. But, but things are looking positive. But it looks like right now, going into archery season, that they aren't going to be finalized before archery season starts, right? It looks that way. So what would you what, what should a hunter do on September 1st? What should their mindset be as far as the rules and regs go? As of right now, we'll be operating under the previous regulations. Last year's regs? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, We have a press release uh, prepared, but it hasn't went out yet. Yeah. That will explain this a little bit more in detail. Do you know when that might go out? No, I do not. Okay, okay. So uh, basically, just go with last year's regs. Uh, mm-hmm. Something's going to be happening soon, but we, mm-hmm. we can't say exactly when because honestly, it's out of our hands. It is out of our hands, yes. Yeah, so so that's what's going on with your regs. Last year's uh, are, are what you're going to stick to until the, the regs are actually finalized and mm-hmm. something new comes out. And I'm sure whenever that does come out, we'll put we it. We will let you know. We'll put it everywhere. Mm-hmm. If I had to guess, I'd say we'd probably put it on. Every, on, every platform that we have available. Everything we have. Probably a few that we don't even usually use. Like I, I've heard that we're going to put posters up at retailers and stuff and like that. you can also refer to it. We have the current hunting guide with everything that's that's good right now. And then we're going to come out with a second edition later when everything is finalized. So you can look on the um, current hunting guide is posted on our website. It's mm-hmm. on the scroll at the beginning at fw.ky.gov. And if you have any questions, you can refer to that because that's what, what it is right now. Well, uh, let's get to what you want to get to. I just want to touch deer regs really quickly because mm-hmm. I know people are curious about that. Like, if honestly, if I didn't work here, I might be a little lost. If yeah, I it, it, it's been a confusing process, and um, I can understand the frustrations. Yeah. But uh, it's all for the benefit of the resource. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, you have to compromise on certain things, and uh, that's just, you know, one thing about compromise usually is no one's, if it's a good compromise, no one's happy. So, well, you know, the thing is, I think a lot of people think that the people of Fish and Wildlife really, you know, make all the rules and regs. That's not necessarily the case. We may have to pass the legislature before it becomes law. We make suggestions Mm -hmm. or we we might write what we think should be the law, Mm -hmm. but we don't make laws. We they all goes through. And and my I write the release for them, and we always use the language of recommended and proposed. Yeah, recommended and proposed changes, mm-hmm. 
And of course it's out of our hands as far as what actually, I mean, they of course listen to our biologists and listen to our input because mm -hmm. those are the experts on the subject. But at yeah. the same time, uh, there's pressure from other people as well. Mm -hmm. And those decisions aren't ultimately, ultimately made by us. And that's why there might be a little bit of confusion. It's not just fish and wildlife trying to jack people around mm -hmm. and, and screw with the hunters and uh, outdoorsmen, but it's something out of fish and wildlife's control to a point. As of this time, yes. Yep. All right. Well, let's let's jump back into Dove, and uh, I want to hear what we well, talked to Wes Little, right? Yeah, sure did. I want to hear what Wes had I to say. JB a little bit too. JB. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. You talked to the two. They're both they're both at a meeting this week, but uh, um, I quoted Les or Wes in this. Well, so and, uh, talked to JB a little. People bit. People might not. Know, they should know Wes Little because he's been. He's on the, the migratory bird biologist, and he was a guest uh, two two programs ago. Yeah, he was us. he was on the podcast We're talking about the the mentor youth hunts. And uh, JB would be John Brunge's arm. Uh, he's the program coordinator for the migratory bird program. So he is actually one above Wes. He he is the top dog in the migratory bird program. That is correct. And then Wes is a mm -hmm. uh, is a biologist a, underneath him. Yeah, and he kind of focuses on doves and. Other migratory birds like that. So yes. I'm not exactly sure. I don't want to misspeak. But mm -hmm. what did uh, what did Wes and JB have to say? Well, one of the things that, that I think anybody who's been around this summer would notice is that we've had ample rainfall. I know, I know you've hated that. <laughs> you've hated it. And it has really messed my creek fishing up terrible. I'm yeah, about yeah. to pull my hair out. A good buddy of mine, an old fishing buddy of mine <laughs> for 20 years, we've had a little wade. We wanted to go early on Sunday morning and wade the lower part of Elkhorn. And we've had to cancel it on its fourth week in a row because you know you can't wait when it's twelve hundred CFS. No, so no, 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 no. We were about. I mean, and and you and, and uh, Jameson and I've had a paddle schedule. What for going on its fifth week? We've tried to coordinate, oh. and every time we finally settle on a date, here comes a freshet through two inches of rain. Oh, Boom. It's, it's ridiculous. I've it's, never seen anything like it. It's the summer I can remember in my uh, far, memory. Farmers have got to be loving it, but mm -hmm. as a creek fisherman. It has been yeah, it's been rough. 80s. <laughs> oh, exactly. I mean, it's exactly like you said. As soon as the water starts to get down, and this is just this is any creek. This could be Floyd's or Elkhorn or Otter. As mm -hmm. soon as the water is getting down to where you want it to be to go mm -hmm. fishing, like, oh great, it's there. Yeah, here it, here it comes. Just listen in the distance for the thunder because it's coming as soon as it gets pretty. Yeah, it's. Like However. That's made us mad as creek fishermen, but it's made the sunflowers very happy. Yeah, exactly. And sunflowers and habitat conditions across the state are fantastic. And if you've noticed, I've just noticed an incidental driving around. And I hate saying my neighborhood I've seen a lot, but I have seen a lot of doves in the state. And um, it, it looks like we could have an extraordinary season of things work out. I'm, I'm in the same boat as you as far as just driving around and seeing them. And I actually live next to the public dove field in Shelby County. I've mentioned that before. And I'm seeing them on the power lines. And that's mm -hmm. not just in that dove field, but just driving around, uh, you know, country roads and, and seeing other people's uh, dove fields that they have out, private fields that people have planted, uh, just crop fields in general, power lines lining the road. I mean, there are there are a lot of doves here this year. Oh, you see them just driving around. I mean, you'll hear them flush and yeah. around my neighborhood. I mean, they're coming into my feeder all the time. Um, when I've been out in the country, it's just nuts how I many I've seen. So that's a good sign. Yeah. Another thing, um, <clears throat> remember this year the opener is on a Saturday. Uh-huh. So yes. it, it likely will be crowded on public fields, but with all those hunters in the field, it'll keep the birds stirred up, and that should make for good hunting both all weekend because it's Memorial Day weekend or Labor Day weekend rather. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are happy it's on <clears throat> it's on a Saturday because that gives them a chance to be out there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it, you know, it is probably going to be a little bit busier. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're going to a public field, I mean, you should have a great time. I mean, duff hunting is really just about getting out there and shooting some shells and 
you know, if you can take home some some doves and cook up something on the grill, that's a that's a little bit of a bonus. But if you're going to a public field, make sure you have got your license, you got everything squared away, and you feel there's it. a good chance you will be checked. Yeah, your hip survey also. Mm-hmm. Make sure you have your hip number. Yes. Yeah, and that, if you don't know what that is, that's just a quick, quick survey. I think it's two to five questions, depending on how you answer. It takes me about two minutes. Yeah, to do exactly. That. And uh, you will need that hip number on your license to be legal. And, and you go to our website again, fw.ky.gov, and click on My Profile. And then over on the right side, there's a banner. It'll say, uh, uh, it'll have HIP Migratory Bird Survey. You uh-huh. click on that, and then a number will come up. You write it on your license, but you can also print it off the website, print another license, and have the HIP number on it. And that, uh, if some people might not have listened to the actual podcast we did with Wes, so they might mm-hmm. not know why that is, but the HIP survey is important. And it's something fairly new that mm-hmm. we're requiring people to do on their own. But that data, it's data collection, obviously, and it's data that we have been trying to collect for years. Mm-hmm. And previously, it was something that was supposed to be part of the questionnaire that the cashier who was selling you your paper license at Walmart or wherever you're buying it at was supposed to fill out. But we were getting bad data back mm-hmm. from uh, from that process because the people who were inputting that information, instead of actually asking the questions and, and typing in the correct answer, they were just putting zero, 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 zero. So they could get done quicker, yeah. especially if it was crowded yeah. and there were several people in line. They just go bam, 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 bam to get it over. With yeah. Quicker. So so because we were getting bad info back, you know, we couldn't we couldn't actually manage the resources. And it's that's a federal thing because it's a migratory bird. It's actually not even in our control. It's a federally yes. mandated uh, data collection. So we, we've got to get good data back, and that's why we're acquiring that now. And the quality of our data has improved dramatically since we've been oh, yeah. the Harvest Information Program, which yep. is what HIP stands for. But uh, Yeah, Harvest Information Program. <clears throat> but, but long story short, just make sure you do that if you're going to any field. But and, you know, if you go to a public dove field, you should probably expect to. And, and, and make sure you check the plug on your gun. Sometimes, like you borrow, and especially if you borrow a gun from someone, make sure that plug's in there and you can only put uh, two. 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 And two. One in the... One in the action. And if you don't have a plug, this is what I've done with my personal shotgun. I uh, I don't I don't have a plug for my gun, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, I could probably put five or six shells in the tube. Mm-hmm. But what I did was I actually took the uh, the cap off the tube, just like you're going to disassemble a gun, right? It's a Remington A70. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the more common guns people are shooting. I have one. I got a Wingmaster. The same. This, this, this works the same for all pump-action shotguns that I've ever known. You just unscrew the, the big screw at the end of the, uh, the tube underneath the barrel. Mm-hmm. And then I actually took shotgun shells and put them in the end of the tube with the spring and the stopper below them, right? Mm-hmm. So if my gun held five, I needed to hold two. I just put three shotgun shells mm-hmm. in the top spent end. Spent shotgun shells or live? Well, it's probably safer to go spent, mm-hmm. but mine are live. <laughs> but that, that, like I said before, if I ever get into a situation in the zombie apocalypse or something and I'm out of shells, I just pop that bad boy off. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think there's a... A legal limit on how many shells your shotgun can hold if you're shooting zombies, right? Yeah, no. So, <laughs> you know, some you can use a dowel rod. Yeah. Um, I've had a friend of mine use a big pin. Um, if and you can also buy the the uh, actual plug. plug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just about anywhere, and they're not very expensive. But if you're in a bind, um, you can use you know uh, another material just to make sure that it yeah. keeps just two shells Hold, from being holds two, and mm-hmm. I, I mean. Yeah, that's one of those things you need to make sure of as well. What else you got as far as dove hunting goes? Because, well, you know, we were just talking a minute ago. There's a cold front coming down. Mm-hmm. And this is a, something Chad actually brought up at lunch today. Cold front's coming down. I, he said it's supposed to be getting pretty chilly up north. Michigan's looking at highs in the 50s in the coming, you know, week and a half leading up to dove season. And uh, his idea, and I'm not sure how much truth to mm-hmm. this there is, and it makes sense, 
is that that colder weather should push. It should push some birds down on us, yes. Yeah, so we could be looking As long as it stays warm here and cold up there, that's great. Well, either way, it's not going to be. I mean, It won't won't run too many birds out of the bus if it's a little cooler. If you're talking about 50s or the high, I mean, you're Mm -hmm. talking about lows in the low 40s or 30s, potentially. Mm -hmm. You could be talking about near freezing temperatures at night up there. Mm -hmm. So we won't get anywhere close to that. No. The coldest I could see us possibly getting, even with a cold front right now, would probably be lows in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about that, uh, you know, here in the next couple of days. Exactly, exactly. But one, uh, another thing that that um, a lot of times, if you're especially if you're going to a public field and you get there early, um, where do you go? Where's a good place to set up? Yeah. And a lot of people um, just go to a place where there's not other people. Yeah. And and I. And I've been on fields before, and we all have who've dove hunted much. Wow, the people down in that right corner are just hammering them, and I haven't had a bird fly over me in two hours. You know, this so. applies especially to public fields, which you're talking about, but mm-hmm. this, this works on private, too. Yes, but so, choosing your spot yeah. wisely is, is really good. And Wes, he likes to be high, and uh-huh. I do, too, so you can... It's hard. If you're down low, birds are on top of it before you can react to them, yeah. and then and, you miss a lot. And they're typically going to be higher flyers if you're mm-hmm. down low than if you're up high. Cause, yeah, I mean, and they're going to be faster and higher flyers, so you're going to have a much more difficult shot. Yeah. But one of the things I look for is a dead tree. Doves love a dead. My brother and I call them skag trees. A lot of people do. But a dead tree, uh, doves are attracted to it, and they roost in them. And that's just a good spot to set up by. Seems mm-hmm. like they'll be coming to those sometime during the day. Yeah. Gaps in the trees also work. They'll use a gap to fly into the field. And also, if you're along a fence line that has a row of trees, look and see if doves are using it. They often use those as kind of their highways in the sky. And they'll, they'll fly along a fence line or a row of trees and veer into the field. Yeah, that makes but sense. But the place to, to open places that are low usually are not the best spots in the yeah. field. So look for something that could attract <laughs> or funnel doves or high spots where mm-hmm. you'll probably have them flying close. To and them. dead trees. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And if there's a dead tree near water, that's a really good spot. Yeah, I read. Did, is this a press release that was emailed? Yeah, it came out last Thursday. I can't remember if I read it detailed or I skimmed through it, but I did remember reading that uh, farm ponds were another. If, yes. you, if you didn't have access to a crop, you know, sunflowers or mm-hmm. hemp or anything like that, that farm ponds attract doves as well. Yeah, because they have to water. Yeah. And the farm ponds are a little lower that have mud, like a good distance of mud, doves don't like high grass because they can't get around. So they'll land on that mud, they'll go down and get their water, and you can have good pass shooting coming in and out, especially if that farm pond's somewhat near a gravel road because sometimes during the when they're feeding, they need to re, uh, fill grit in their crop to break up seeds. So they pick up little pieces of, of gravel and rock, then they'll go uh, to the farm pond, then they may go feed. So if you can find an area where they're using like that, I used to, near the, the public dove field in Madison yeah. County, I've hunted that for 25 yeah. years, and I used to, in late season, there's a little pond, gravel driveway, and hay bales, I could sit there and shoot 10 birds third third week of September through the end of the first segment in, in late October hmm. and do good. You know, based off what you're telling me right now, I'm really excited about one of my, my favorite dove hunting spots, right? But it all depends on crop rotation mm-hmm. because they aren't planting anything for doves here. But uh, this year, it's on a gravel driveway. And there are power lines that parallel the gravel driveway. Perfect. And right there, the power lines are good spots too. They use those as flight lines too. And this is the gravel driveway sits up high above a ravine, right? Mm-hmm. And right there at the bend in the gravel driveway, there's an old farm pond that has a lot of mud around it. And then going down the hill, it's soybeans. And then coming up the other side, there's 86 acres of hemp. Hmm. So well, I'm you should smoke there behind right I'm, there. Yeah, I, I can go out there and routinely see two or three hundred birds on the line, but. 
it's not even a spot other people really think about dove hunting because they have spots dedicated to dove hunting on this on this property. But I'm thinking right now in my head, maybe that's the spot. To that would to. be a great spot, and that looks that'd be the kind of spot that'll hold them for mm-hmm. a good good while. Well, uh, the only problem with that spot is, uh, like I said, there's crops all around, so there's soybeans, and when a dove falls in the soybeans, okay, you can't find. No, it. you're you're pretty much done there. So that's one reason that I, I might not go hunt that. It's a late bean, so they're mm-hmm. going to be full and green and bushy. It's not like it's going to be the beans that are almost ready to combine or anything like that so i don't know i, I don't like a, that that might be a good spot in the second or third segment too like yeah. thanksgiving and into to the first of the year well if it's got hemp close by there's a good chance it's going to be holding doves late in the season yes, so that's and, and hemp fields if you can find them there's not many around at, at this time but i that'll likely change in the future yeah. um they're excellent late season spots. Yeah, one of the like for those people who didn't listen to the West Little podcast, maybe they're just tuning into this one. The reason hemp fields are so good is because so many seeds are put off, mm-hmm. and they're smaller seeds that the doves can really mm-hmm. digest easy. And they're, because there's so many of them, they stay on the ground a lot longer. They don't get picked up as quick. Mm-hmm. Plus, uh, some of the types of hemp production don't don't care about the seed. They're just raking the the stalks of the plants and that puts every bit of seed on the ground like mm-hmm. if you're hunting over a cut cornfield they're trying to gather that corn mm-hmm. they lose some of it if you're hunting soybeans they're trying to gather the soybeans so they they just lose a small portion of it on the ground but with some hemp 100 percent of that seed might be on the ground yeah so it, it provides a great great source of food for the doves throughout the whole season and silage fields after they're cut are a great late season spot as well mm-hmm. and and one last thing uh that we always uh people are worried is is this uh, what what is baited and what's not and what's legal. Uh, and, and we've talked a lot about, you know, I know a lot of people may shoot feedlots, but if there's food broadcast out and it's on the ground uh, as waste, you know, it's probably the smartest plan is to, to, to not hunt those spots. So, so what does, because uh, I know if it's a legitimate agricultural practice, yes. it's not baiting, right? Yes. So, so But now a, a tobacco field, Covered in wheat, yeah. When are that's we, already been uh, harvested, completely legal. Well, because I mean, obviously a lot of tobacco fields get sown in winter wheat mm-hmm. uh, as their cover crop, so that's a legitimate agricultural practice. Yes, and they're legal. And uh, so, so what is, I anything that's legitimate agriculture, you don't got to worry about. Mm-hmm. But what about uh, what what could be considered baited? Well, I was, for example, I was at a field one time, and um, I looked down and I noticed that there was an extraordinary amount of wheat. <laughs> <laughs> on the on the ground, and <clears throat> that would have been fine. But it was uh, corn and soybeans, or sunflowers rather, uh, that had been mown down, and then they added that later. So they just went there and so I, I called my wife and had her call me back and act like there was an emergency, and I left. <laughs> so, I, so I didn't want them to get mad at me. You did the old call but me. But I in got two the, I got the fire out of there. So yeah. uh, the simple is if you add more that. Th- um, then what you've cut down, say you, you put out a plot. My brother puts out sunflowers and millet. Then he'll cut strips through it. That's legal. But if he came back and added more millet or added wheat or whatever, that's illegal. So, let uh, me if somebody puts out and grows sunflowers or millet just for the sole purpose of dove hunting, though. Yeah, that, that's, that, a, that's a legitimate plot. Okay, okay. That's where I was. I was just kind of curious. So just don't And if you it. cut that down and then cut strips in it, you're legal. But yeah. when you add extra, you're not. Okay. And that, some people like to put out a bunch of stuff. And then the day before, turn it under. And then you see a bunch of doves coming to a bare field. That's also a red flag. Um, because that that's, you know, that's one of those borderline issues that, that you should avoid. What do you mean? Well, I, I've heard of people that will put out a lot of winter wheat on an already just a bare dirt field. And then the, the day before the shoot, 
go in with the disc and turn all of that weed under so you just have bare dirt, but the doves are still attracted to it. Okay. So one of the one of the uh, uh, one of the big words with baiting is to influence. Okay. So they're adding extra stuff to influence the behavior of the bird. Okay. And that's not a legitimate agricultural practice. You're just bringing birds in to shoot them without, you know, if you raise a food plot, it's one thing, but putting broadcasting winter wheat and then turning it under the day before is, is one of those um, gray areas. But uh, you know, that's again, to influence. Yeah. So that your bait that you're adding is influencing the behavior of the birds. It's a little, so, little risky there. Yes. It's risky. What else, uh, what else you got written down over there? I, Cause like I said, I wish I would have had the press release printed out. Oh, but. that's fine. I got it right here. Um, one last thing too is, uh, Practice a little bit before you go in the dove field because they humble you. Doves are hard to hit. Six and a half shells per dove. Per dove, yeah. That's what I was going to say. The national average is around six and a half shells per dove. So try to try to be that. Yeah. If you can beat that, you're doing good. You, so know, you should really start. That's four birds per box. <laughs> yeah. So 25 shots, four birds is the national average. Right. So get out and practice. Another thing that that is of vital importance, I've written about this for, and, and I've been practicing myself. I went through a slump for a while, and I realized I was getting some bad habits from shooting rifles off a bench Yeah, in which you slump over and look down a scope. Uh, raise your, if you're right-handed, raise your right elbow. If you're left-handed, raise your left elbow. But get that elbow paralleled and marry that stock to your cheek. They call it wood to wood. That keeps your head level, and it raises your gun. And you'll be amazed, just that simple adjustment, how much that'll improve your shooting. Well, yeah. You don't want to move your cheek to the stock. You want to move your stock to the cheek. So there's a notch on your shoulder. It should just fit naturally. High and raise your elbow high, and man, it'll God, it'll improve your shooting one, dramatically. One thing, and, and I'm going to refer to rifle shooting here. <clears throat> Even though you said rifle shooting kind of gave you the bad habits, mm-hmm. that's because you're rifle shooting off a bench. Mm-hmm. But when I uh, competitively shot, you wanted to keep your ears level because mm-hmm. your, your ears have a lot to do with balance. Yes, and, and same with shotgun. Yeah, exactly. That's, a, that's good. That's a great, great way to put it. So, uh, so when you're shooting competitive rifle in the standing position, you want to try to keep your ears as level as possible, and you can have a cant to your rifle mm-hmm. as long as you you know account for that in how you sight in your rifle. And with the shotgun, a cant's a little bit less to worry about mm-hmm. because that beats it's right on top of top that barrel. Of the gun. Yeah. So you so you really don't have to worry about that too much at all. So yeah, cant your shotgun if you need to. Yeah. Just keep yourself. And back. I put a little cast in mine too. A lot of people don't, but I put just a little cast in mine. And yeah. another thing is synthetic shotguns. Woods is a little bit harder to adjust, but synthetic shotguns. Most a lot of them have synthetic stocks. Come with the little shim kit. Yeah. Use it. You know, adjust it up and down to where, when you look down the barrel, you see just a little bit of the rib and your bead. Yeah. If you don't see any bead, you need to adjust it to raise a little bit. If you see rib and bead and it looks like it's going uphill, then you need to raise that, adjust that stock. That's how it always is for me because I got such a big head. Mm-hmm. My cheek, my cheekbone sits so far from my actual, you know. Then, my, it, then your barrel looks like it's going uphill. Yeah, I'm, and I constantly have to adjust for that. And honestly, right. during this last turkey season, I was shooting a shotgun that wasn't adjusted for me, mm-hmm. and I just knew. So basically, if you, you know, it kind of, it's it's going to be impossible for me to describe this on the podcast. But if I was to lower my head down, you know, like tilt mm-hmm. my cheek, and I could see where it was. When I had everything lined up, and then I lifted my head up and put it in the actual shooting position without moving the gun, I can see the 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 change at the end of my barrel. So the bead was here when I was looking correctly, and when I when I put my face up here where it actually fits the shotgun, the bead is sitting, you know, about six inches lower mm. uh, on the target. Mm-hmm. So doing that, I knew where I needed to actually aim at a turkey, mm-hmm. and that's how I killed the turkey this year. I was actually my bead just because I had that uphill slope. Mm-hmm. My bead was actually sitting at the the base of the neck instead of halfway up where I would typically put it. 
and if you have a wooden stock, sometimes you can change it by putting a little bit of a different pad on the back yeah. or whatever, and you can change it that way by putting a little bit of shim in your in your uh, butt pad, taking yeah. it off, and you can adjust it that way to to raise or lower your your but, gun. But when you're shooting a shotgun, you know it's not instinctive shooting, but it's closer to instinctive shooting mm -hmm. than than shooting a rifle is, whether it's a scoped rifle or something mm -hmm. like that. Because honestly, a, a lot of shot, sh shotgun shooting at a moving target like a dove is instinctive in what you do with your your lead mm -hmm. and your follow through because you're not you're not aiming for that you're just feeling it. So uh, having a gun that fits you well and you can just kind of you know move and handle naturally is, is going to be important. And and uh, one my buddy was an excellent shot. Uh, he's so he makes you mad when you shoot doves with him because he'll out shoot you two to one. He's like, Lee, paint your bird like you've got a big paintbrush and just paint your bird with your shot string. You know, when you're growing up and you were a little kid, it looked like it was a pie pan that came out of the shotgun, like Elmer Fudd. But it's actually a shot string that looks like a, a snake that ate a, a, a big rat. Thin at one end, fat in the middle, and thin at the other. And when you hit it with the middle of the shot string, that's when that bird folds perfectly and just drops like a rock. For some reason, I had this uh, picture in my head of your buddy being, uh, what's that artist uh, that would paint the, the, the happy trees? <laughs> Bob Ross. Yeah, some reason I was it's, picturing. It's your world. Yeah, some reason I was picturing Bob Ross. <laughs> paint the bird. Paint the bird. It's your world. <laughs> you know, and another thing that we all do, and, and I'm terrible about it myself, is when you feel the recoil of the shot, you'll stop. You and then you miss it. behind. All I do it all the time drives me nuts. Yeah. Paint your bird. That way you're throwing that shot string out in front of them. And if you're confused, just do the. You know, there's two ways, swing through, which is, you know, you swing from the from the tail, butt, belly, beak, bang. So you just swing through, and as soon as it hits the beak and you keep swinging, bang, you, you pull. Or put the barrel out in front of the bird, you know, which looks like maybe four or five feet to you, which it isn't, but it's what it looks like. And that's called a sustained lead. And those are better for longer shots, but, you know, you can use it anywhere and then just adjust until you get it right and bang bang you'll drop them yep yeah that will of course depend on where the bird is they obviously yes. aren't all flying through the same distance away no. but you know you get a feel for it. and that's just i mean it's experience you get mm -hmm. out there i'm not i'm not great mm -hmm. you know what i mean and every year it it's seems, hard a lot of people think it's easy it's well, hard well the thing is you're in the unless you go and shoot clays a lot or something like that this might be the only time that a lot of people go out there and actually shoot a flying mm -hmm. target, you know? So, uh, if you get a chance to practice, that's why it's so important yeah, to practice. Hell, it might save you money in the field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and one thing I like to do, buy a little bit better shells too. Those hunter packs, of, of, they're fine, but, you know, I like to get a little, uh, get a, a decent target load. And there's usually a dollar more a box. What's that so, shot do you like? Uh, seven and a half. So I'm like Wes. That's the thing. I shoot seven and a half early. I shoot seven and a half in mid season. I shoot seven and a half late. I shoot now, sevens. I think I yeah. usually go with seven. But, yes. Um, if you shoot steel, seven is a good one. Some people are shooting a lot of steel now, um, especially on some of our WMAs where you have it. But um, you have to. Right? Yes, you have to. But uh, some people like eights and nines. I don't like nines. Nines are fine for close in, but I don't think nines have enough uh, downrange velocity to really drop them much, other than the really easy shots on opening day. So you can shoot seven and a half early, late. Just gets in. If it's really late, like in December, you can get away with shooting sixes because they're really long shots. But seven and a half will do you really yeah. good all the time. You got anything else on doves? I might switch gears. Okay. One, um, I'll remember to uh, also, if you have a dog, bring plenty of water because dogs will get, December, or September is hot. Yeah. A lot of people don't bring water for their dogs, and dogs can get overheated quickly in the dove field. Yep, that's true. That's a good point. Good dog. They bring water for you and your dog. Uh, so. speaking, speaking of bringing water for me, I'm going to go ahead and... I've been sipping on mine. Oh, there we go. So, All right. Um, also, uh, you know, 
you know, I have to have an expensive gun to dove hunt well. No. A good pump will do you just fine. Well, you can go with the single shot if you really want to challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. Go to the pawn shop and spend 120 bucks. You can get a single shot, yes. You just but, want to go dove hunt. But I'd rather have a pump so I get three. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I, this is probably going to be a little bit shorter podcast today. I have the feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I have here in my hand are leftover questions from the non-game Colin show, right? Mm-hmm. And I haven't even really read through these, but I thought it could just be fun to go through and read some of these. Because some people give you some pretty weird questions. Mm-hmm. No, I know. Like, when I've worked the show, I've, I've been surprised. And I'm not going to give any answers that I'm not 100% certain mm-hmm. about because obviously it's not my job to answer these questions. Mm-hmm. We have, we apologize for that. But if there's someone in here that I know I know the answer to, I will, and you can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like this first one here, uh, what does a bobcat look like? Asked by Hazel from Clay County. Yeah. Well, it looks like the Kentucky Wildcat. <laughs> yeah, just look at a UK. <laughs> Honestly, a Google search might be your best way to find mm-hmm. the answer to that one. But it looks kind of like... they're definitely feline. And, you know, yeah. they're... they're Gold, white, with black stripes. Probably, so they're beautiful. Probably average 15 to 25 pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have some of them are really spotted. Some of them are fairly uh, dull colored on the sides. You know, white underbellies, like a, a tan or gold side. They have black spots on them. Uh, short tail, probably about three inches, three or four inches. And if you get a really close look, they have these extremely impressive claws mm-hmm. and, uh, and canines. And if you want to get a look at one, come here to the Slato Wildlife Education Center. We have one. You know, I heard our bobcats aren't back there right now. Oh, they're not? I think they're building them a pool, so they have them stored. Okay. Or not stored. It's not like they're in boxes, but they have them somewhere else. I didn't know that. Whoop. But uh, I, was, I got to know Blue. I was there when they released the first one back there. I was just told that today on the way home from lunch. So. All right, this next question. Are there weasels in Mercer County? I, I see weasels uh, when I go out hunting from time to time, or I, I'm assuming it's a weasel. I wouldn't be surprised at all. But are there weasels in Mercer County? Next one. When is a possum breeding season? I do not know. Well, I tell you what, it's got to be a late spring, in my opinion, because I see uh, possums with babies um, all the time in early I have summer. A lot in my neighborhood. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I had a possum in my backyard this year. They still had a bunch. I mean, they were in her pouch. You could see them moving mm-hmm. and stuff, and that was probably two months ago so i'm going to say late spring mm-hmm. that's when breeding season for most animals most animals are, yeah because yeah, that, that gives them time to gestate did i say that right mm-hmm. gestate and uh gestate yeah give birth and uh, enough time for the the babies to grow as much as possible before winter so they got a better chance of survival mm-hmm. uh this one's brian from bourbon county he wants to know if armadillos are becoming more common in central kentucky um, they're becoming more common in Kentucky in general. Yes, but we've had a roadkill one in Moorhead here a couple of years ago. They are moving in from western Kentucky and moving their way up into Kentucky. So I would say they are becoming more common in central Kentucky, especially. I, I go to Arkansas every fall. Here we go in October, and the further west and south I go, the more roadkill armadillos I see. I saw a ton this year. And you know why they get hit by the cars? The okay, armadillos apparently get hit by cars at a higher rate than other animals their size because when they get scared, they jump. And this is something I heard McGregor saying on the Colin show. Apparently, a, like a, when you run over a squirrel, it might just pass under the vehicle, a mm-hmm. rabbit or something like that. When you run over an armadillo, even if you don't hit it with the tires, it's going to jump into the underbelly of the car or into the front of the car. So they have less chance of being missed by the car. Mm. Have I you, didn't know that. Yeah, if you ever look at an armadillo get scared, like a video of somebody scaring one, I mean, they jump straight up in the air about two or three feet and then they take off running. So he said a lot of them will jump into the car, and even if they don't get hit by the front of the car, they will get a hole in their shell, and that usually kills them. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's why you see a lot of them. This one, uh, Bob from Boone County, are kestrels an endangered or threatened species right now? Not that I'm aware of. I don't know that one for sure. I mean. I love kestrels. They're cool. The Jim from Rockcastle County. 
I want to know about turkey mites preventatives. I'd like to know that too. <laughs> turkey <laughs> mites. We should have Zach Danks here. Yeah, we should. But some of these questions, you know, these are the kind. Of, these are the kinds of questions that people do actually get the answers to on the call-in shows. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we can't answer all of them. We can mm-hmm. try to answer a few, but it's just kind of interesting to. Now, see their what, dusting behavior is to get the turkey mites. Mm-hmm. It's just to get bugs off of them, correct? Dusting. I would mm-hmm. assume that's probably what they do when they clean themselves, because mm-hmm. I know they're not cleaning anything else off of themselves. Janet from Jefferson County. How to discourage barn swallows from nesting and roosting on her porch. Because the thing mm-hmm. is, barn swallows are, are a protected animal, right? I believe so. I don't think that once they do nest or roost, you're allowed to, to do anything to them. But most songbirds are fairly protected. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's, that's a good one. I mean, I'm sure you can use those little spikes or like nail, mm-hmm. you know, just to prevent them from nesting there. I mean, like you see... Uh, You've seen rooftops and mm-hmm. tops of buildings that have those spikes going around the edges mm-hmm. to prevent birds and owls from getting up there and stuff like that. I'm sure that would probably work for barn swallows as well, as long as you do it before they do it. And just if, if there's a particular area they're doing that's use some kind of blocking um, apparatus should should work. Jonathan from Woodford County, what kind of venomous snakes are found in Woodford and Franklin area? Uh, copperhead for sure, mm-hmm. and there's a and rattlesnakes. There's a chance on the timber. Mm-hmm. I do not think we have cotton mouse or pygmy rattlesnakes in this area. I agree. Uh-huh. And my understanding is a lot of people mistake the the uh, like the northern or the midland water snake for a, they think if it's in the water it's poisonous, and that's not true. They're venomous, yeah. And most most of them um, are in far cotton mouse are in far west Kentucky. Yeah, cottonmouths are only far west Kentucky. Pygmy rattlesnakes only in west Kentucky, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, timber rattlesnakes can be more prevalent in eastern. We had them around Bartstown where I grew up all the time. Yeah, they, they could potentially be everywhere, but they're more prevalent in eastern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And the cotton uh, copperhead could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, copperheads for sure and likely timber rattlesnakes. Uh, Gary from Nelson County, what happened to the whippoorwills? That's one for you. That's, you know, th- that's something that's, and I'm from Nelson County. When I was growing up, that was part of the summer um, uh, environment is I, gr- I went to sleep every night with the, the calling back and forth of the whippoorwill and Chuck Will's willow. Yeah. And they are in decline. And I don't know if there's a good answer for it right now. I wish, uh, I wish John McGregor were here. He could help us with that. Yeah. You know, I have heard several, I mean, I've, I've been hearing whippoorwills this mm-hmm. year, but you kind of got to be out there late at night, two in the morning, three mm-hmm. in the morning. And I've heard- I, mean, I love them. It's, it's, I just, it tears me up if there's anything going wrong with them, but, but, uh, evidence suggests that they are in, in somewhat in decline. This person asked, uh, are copper belly water snakes rare? I had one in my goldfish pond. Uh, I think that they, they are pretty rare, yes. I, I found a couple this year, and I see other people find them. I don't think they're threatened or endangered at all, but you don't see that many. Well, the, the copper belly is a, it's pretty, um, it's, it's pretty uh, localized yeah. to, to a part of West Kentucky, and I know they were on a, re- in a recovery program, and we. Had people monitoring them and if uh, wanting to report sightings of them. So, oh, maybe I was wrong about that. Yeah, yeah. the the, the copper belly is pretty rare, pretty rare bird. Um, this person asked, "How do I get rid of bagworms that are destroying my trees?" You know, it, I don't know. I remember they they caused the Mary reproductive loss syndrome uh, several years ago, and I've I've not seen as many in the last couple. I, of years. I haven't noticed as many either. I, I had them in my backyard. A I used to ago. see a ton. Of, I mean, I have seen them this year, but I haven't seen them in huge numbers like if, I used to. If memory serves correctly, if you put like a plastic bag around their bag, doesn't that Could, effectively sure. choke them off? I've just said I've to, heard that, but I don't you know. Just break that small piece of branch off and throw it in a local farm pond and help the fish out. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> this person, uh, are peregrine falcon, are there peregrine falcons on Peabody? 
I believe they're I all. believe so. I've seen them on Harrington Lake. I think that, you know, Peabody has those uh, big power plants down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some reason, I'm wanting to say that they do have peregrine falcons on that power plant mm-hmm. there, which would make sense, right? Well, they hack, we've hacked around a lot of power plants. The, this one right here just says bear sighting. Oh. <laughs> that's all there's written on that. But, you know, the bears are uh, common in eastern Kentucky, so that's pro- That's actually my handwriting. I was answering the phones at this calling show. It's so. hard to keep up with them when they're calling, aren't you? Yeah, well, and honestly, this I mean, is, that phone goes off. This was a non-game calling show. Mm-hmm. So when somebody calls about a bear sighting, a bear is a game animal in the state mm-hmm. of Kentucky, so that doesn't get passed on. Uh, this person right here, mountain lion sighting. Dime a, dime a dozen. Well, it looks like. Oh, is that your right? That's too? my handwriting also. Yeah, I just, like I said, I didn't even pass that one on. Um, Montgomery County, what does a hognose snake look like? It's, hmm. That's almost tough to describe. I can, I mean, they, it almost looks, so a lot of snakes right before their head, it's narrower, right? Mm-hmm. So their body uh, gets narrow and then their head protrudes out from that. Mm-hmm. A hognose snake is almost like the head just comes straight out of the body. It's, it's mm-hmm. like it doesn't get narrow at all. And their nose is a little bit more blunt, and it almost has an upturn to it, mm-hmm. kind of like a, a pig would. Mm-hmm. So you know how pigs have like almost like a shovel-type mm-hmm. sh- shape nose they use for rooting around? Well, hognose snakes have that exact same shape as, as, a, as a hog actually does, and they use that for digging around too. Mm-hmm. So they got a more blunt face, and their body and head aren't as uh, distinct from each other as other snakes. I haven't seen one since I was little. I haven't found one, but I'd like to. Kevin from Jefferson County, this is a good one. Do hummingbirds hitch rides on geese when headed south? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, along with the pigs flying beside them. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, that's, that's actually why they have that long beak. They just inject that right into the back of the yeah. goose and ride and straight then, down. Yeah. But yeah, they, yeah. Do hummingbirds catch I think that, that must have been somebody fun in this. Uh, you never know. That could be a troll job. <laughs> you never know. <clears throat> Are cottonmouths and water moccasins the same? Yes. Uh, I've always heard that poisonous snakes have curved teeth. <laughs> well, I'll just go ahead and clarify. So snake, they don't have dentures. So that's yeah. one thing I know. Poisonous snakes do not have dentures. Curved teeth. Oh. So first of all, snakes aren't poisonous. unless you, uh, So if something's poisonous, that means when you eat it, it's poisonous. It will harm you. Uh, something that actually injects you is venomous. is venomous. So snakes have venom. So there's a difference venomous and poisonous. So... Um, Anything that actually injects you with something is venomous. So it's a venomous snakes and curved teeth. I'm assuming you're referring to their fangs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they they would have some fangs. That's in how there. they inject the stuff. Yep. So if people, it's you know, no fun. A lot of people, you know, get this whole venomous and poisonous thing mixed up. And for people to go out there and find snakes and pick them up and like handle them, it's like no, they're not poisonous. They're venomous. I don't know why. It just kind of gets to you. Can a copperhead jump? I've not seen a jumping copperhead. <laughs> yeah, they just bend their knees. <laughs> I think they square dance on occasion, but I don't know if they jump. How would one jump? That's my question. Like, I mean, you got to have legs to jump, don't you? Mm, yes. It seems that way. Or jump and fish jump. I've seen fish jump yes. before. Um, this and that. All right. I feel like I've gone through most of this. Are buzzards protected by the federal government? You know, um, I believe they are. I believe they are as well, but look that up. Is Okay, here's a good one, actually. Is antivenom different for each species, and are hospital, hospitals required to keep it in stock? Lord, I have no idea. So I can answer that. Uh, antivenom different for each species. So what they do is they say we have four different types of venomous snakes here in Kentucky, right? So what they do is they take the venom from each of those snakes, and they make a, uh, an antivenom out of all four of them. 
So when you go to the hospital after you get bit, you don't need to know if it was a rattlesnake or if it was a copperhead or water moccasin because they have specially designed the antivenom for the region. So one antivenom will treat any snake that should be found or any type of venom that should be found in that region. So it's not different for each species. It's based on where you're at in the world. I did not know that. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, they they literally make it out of every species around here. So one antivenom will work for all species in the state of Kentucky or anywhere nearby. And are hospitals required to keep it in stock? No, I don't believe so. Hmm. I think major hospitals might have some, but I don't think like obviously I don't think Jewish Hospital in Shelbyville down here has antivenom. And they might. I mean, you know, I, I don't think it's required, but could be. Um, what can be done habitat wise for chimney swifts that have lost their chimneys? I don't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think that one could be a troll, too. I'm just running through these. Any way to eradicate moles? You know, I, Is I, there... <laughs> if you find out, please let me know. Because, I mean, my neighbor put the electric do-flippy in that you can buy that's supposed to, and it chased all the moles into my yard. And then now they've, like, went back to hers. So I don't <laughs> I think that's a short-term fix, but it doesn't doesn't work. I don't know what you. I do. believe that th there are traps available to where you can you can um, eliminate them. But I don't know. Get yourself it, some beagles and some rat snakes and turn them loose on your property. And, and I, I think they're after the the grubs, but um, that are in your soil. Um, I've noticed past couple of years I haven't had as many problems with them. So how can I get rid of the moles in my yard? Mole eradication is popular. Best thing to plant for my life. All right, that's probably enough of these because I'm seeing there. Okay, this one's kind of interesting. Black crawfish in Nolan River before the dam was put in, they were up to 10 inches long. What species was this? I don't know what species it was, but I did learn on the call and show um, from Monty that we have crawfish species here in Kentucky. First of all, we have over 60 species of crawfish, we have some very rare ones too, and some of them get up to 11 inches long. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. I've never seen one that big, but I might have to go look for it in particular. In Roaring Ponch Creek in McCurry County, there was a study. Some of the oldest species um, as far as you know, age of, of how long it's been around on Earth are found in Roaring Ponch Creek, and there was a study on them. We also have the bottlebush crayfish in the Green River, um, which are very rare. Really? Mm -hmm. huh. They're beautiful, but they're, they're, their antennae do look like a bottlebrush. I think he might have actually had one of those with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the on the show, and then I tell you what, like I said, we this is honestly we've been going for a little bit, but one more thing this morning on uh, our Instagram page, the show's Instagram page, and my personal one, I put out there. You know, we're doing a podcast today. Uh, let us know if there's anything in particular you want to hear about or know about and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So, um, what are some good early season tips? I'm guessing they're talking about bow season. So, just play your what you. Deer have a pattern early season. You don't want to bump them from that pattern. I don't know if you're talking about bucks or does. If you're talking about a buck in particular, I'd say play it safe and only hunt when you have the right conditions. Uh, they're going to be patterned fairly early, going to food sources at night. Try not to hunt mornings because if you do hunt a, a morning, you've got a greater chance of, of bumping a deer. I'm going to say basically listen to the last podcast we did because it has a lot more detail. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to go into it all. And uh, let's see, next one. The new deer bag limits and your regulations and what you thought about it. That's already been touched on as much mm -hmm. as it's going to be touched on. 
as soon as those regulations are finalized, I guess I can talk more. But right now, I'm not going to speculate anymore. Yeah, we'll have a podcast and, and you know, totally dedicated to that when it's time. I kind of feel bad about the fact that we had Gabe on and did that whole podcast about new deer eggs, and now things have been amended mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, because I uh, I want to put the right no info. No one can predict the future. Well, let's say I want to put the right info out there, though. I don't want to misinform people. And so when things get, you know, jerked around a little bit, it kind of makes me feel like, well, hey, I just told a bunch of people the wrong thing. Unfortunately, that's not what I'm trying to do at all. Well, next time, uh, basically, I'm just going to say I'm waiting this time until I I know for sure. So I don't misspeak on the same thing twice. Um, When does bow season start for you? I'm assuming this person's not in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. In Kentucky, it's September 1st this year. It's typically the first Saturday of September this year. This year, it's, yeah. Just so happens to be September 1st. And uh, that might be changed to September 1st from here out. Am I personally going to bear hunt this year? Yes. What time of year is your favorite to bow hunt? Late October. Yeah. Late October into early November before gun season. Um, co-op dove hunting fields. Where to find the information and their locations? It's on um, the dove guide this year. Um, I'm glad we brought that's another. It's like something bothered me. This year, we're not printing a paper dove guide. It's all online. That helps us. Um, react to changes a little quicker. Go to fw.ky.gov and um, click under hunt and in game species and migratory birds. You have a basically a word version of the dove guide and then we also have a PDF of the printable version that has all the information about the uh, the public dove fields this year. The mentor youth signups um, are over as of last Thursday so if you haven't signed up for that I'm sorry you've missed it but we talked about that on the podcast two times ago. Mm-hmm. Again, fw.ky.gov and um, um, hunt, game species, migratory birds. And yep. you can find two different versions of the guide. Yep. Um, next one, public places to sight in bows. This is pretty dependent on where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, like here in Frankfurt, we have Cove Springs, mm-hmm. which is a park on the east side of town. They have an archery range and a 3D range. It's really nice. Uh, the guy who asked this, Chase Dame, he's actually from Louisville. Mm-hmm. Uh, I happen to know where he's from. And I know of Otter Creek in Louisville, which mm-hmm. is uh, obviously ran by the Department of Fish and Wildlife. There is a 3D range and a regular bag archery range at Otter Creek. And that's just uh, south of Louisville going towards Brandenburg, Otter Creek Park. If you went to our website and went to the search bar and put in public archery ranges, I believe you get a, a, a good list of, of where a, you can go. Yeah, that's a good good tip there just because mm-hmm. that'll be our ranges. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure. Like, obviously, the Cove Springs Park here is not ours. That's the city of mm-hmm. Frankfurt. So I'm not sure what city parks might have archery ranges. For some reason, I'm feeling like Jefferson County Parks probably don't. Um, but you never know. There might be something close by. Let's see. That's pretty much. Let me the Cove Spring Park facility is nice, isn't it? Oh man, it's great. I'm gonna. There's no better way to get ready for actual uh, bow season shooting on game with a with a bow than shooting 3D targets. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I'm planning to make a few trips up there to uh, do before bow season starts, which is in about a week and a half. So I better get to work. So see practices what, makes perfect. Oh yeah, for or sure. Close to perfect. Man. Yeah, you can't be perfect. But, Lee, I tell you what, that's about all I have. You got anything you want to add today? Uh, I'm sure we'll come back on as soon as the deer regs are are finalized and passed. We will come back on and talk about everything that that happened with them, all the changes and basically everything you need to know. So, If you're in a public dove field or any other dove field, don't shoot at low birds. Yeah. Yeah. Don't shoot at low birds. 
Yeah, I personally live close to a public duck field, and I don't want to get my my house shot up or anything like mm-hmm. that. So uh, I kind of like my eyes; they help yeah. me see. Yeah, you know that's actually a good point. You probably and wear safety glasses exactly. when you shoot when you're in a public field or any field. Wear yeah. wear shooting glasses and don't shoot at low birds. It's a good idea to wear a hat too. I will mm-hmm. tell you what, I've been. Uh, yes, a hat helps. If you dove hunt you enough, you've been peppered before. Mm-hmm. It just happens, and I mean it. <clears throat> a piece of shot flying from all the way across that field, you know, isn't going to hurt you. And it let, like people throwing rice on you, but still it's like, hey. Oh, it's, it's not going to hurt you unless it hits you in the eye. Mm-hmm. So just protect your eyes and you're going to be in good shape. Where, where are some, and you can get them for, I mean, 10 bucks. You can get a pair of the probably go cheaper than that. safety glasses just to put on. Um, you know, one with Amber Tennell had improve your shooting. Yeah. Protect your eyes. And um, uh, they're vital. I don't, I don't shoot without them. Yep. And heck, I mean, you could probably use some sunglasses. You know, my, for example, and then we'll, we'll go away. My brother was shooting a bird that was perpendicular to me a couple of years ago, and it wasn't, but he just had a flyer, and it hit me square in the forehead. But I had my glasses on, thank God, but I mean, an inch and a half, and that could have caused some serious damage. Yeah, yeah I would, that I would, happens sometimes. I would not want to get hit in the eye with a spare piece or a flying piece, piece of, of lead. Yeah. That would kind of end your day. Yeah, for sure. So again, no look. pass on the low birds. There'll be more coming. All right. Let's wrap it up, Lee. I need to get this. Like I said, I am a... I, going musky fishing tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. I'm excited. Going musky fishing tomorrow. Hopefully, I can hook up with one. It'll be the last uh, chance I probably have this year, unless I tag out early during bow season. Because when deer season rolls in, I mean, I'm that's a whole new thing. Mm-hmm. I, I have to be out there pretty much. But I feel good about my chances tomorrow. I'm going with a guy who's been catching quite a few fish. Good. And uh, we're either going to fish uh, Middle Fork around Manchester which uh, is if the water's right. If the river's not right, we're going to go to Buckhorn Lake, and I've never fished there. Buckhorn has a lot of good ones. So does South Fork, Kentucky, and Middle Fork, Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. So I am uh, I have fished Middle Fork before. That was on a shoot. I just picked up the rod at the end of the shoot and uh, threw well, a bait The South Fork, Kentucky River is incredible. Uh, I floated it, and I've written about it. It's it's a gem of Kentucky a lot of people don't realize. So I, uh, I'm i hoping I can, I can hook up with one, but basically I need to cut this one short so I have time to turn around and actually get it out today because I, right. I, I'm going to be out tomorrow, and I don't want to hold this off any longer than I have to. Hey, you to, don't want to so. come in at 4 in the morning before you go musky fishing. Shoot, I'll be on the road well before then. Yeah, no doubt <laughs> where you're going. It's a two-and-a-half-hour drive, and uh, we're going to try to catch that topwater bite. So we're talking about being out there at 530. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about being on the road by – Three, three the yeah, latest. Yeah. So, I've had those two o'clock wake up calls. Oh, man, two I, I usually, if you're getting up at two a.m. for some reason, usually it's a good thing. Yeah, it is. Last time I did that was when I was going striper fishing down at Cumberland. Just mm-hmm. a few. Uh, I'm not, going this weekend. Yeah, I know. I heard you saying that. I, 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 it was a good trip when I went down there. I don't know if I told you about. Mm-hmm. I took Kristen down there and she caught her first striper. Yeah, I saw the Facebook yeah. page. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was, it was, it was a nice was, fish. It was good. Did you eat them? I still got half. I've eaten half of them. I got the other half of them still in my freezer right Remember now. Remember, if when you catch a striper before you fillet it, get that red meat out. Yeah, it's got to go. It's got to be all white meat. That red meat will make it strong. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, the red meat's where the impurities are stored. Mm-hmm. So that's one good thing about stripers. They they store the contaminants in a specific part of meat, kind of like how catfish and other fish store it in their mm-hmm. fat on their belly. So you want to get that off. The stripers store the the uh, contaminants in that red meat. So when you cut that off, you got a much cleaner fillet too. Delicious. Striper's good. Doesn't just taste better. It's better for you. Mm-hmm. All right, Lee. Let's uh, let's wrap it up. Thank. All right. Next, maybe next week we'll have a recap of our striper musky adventure. See see how oh, we did. That'd be awesome. I hope so. Hopefully we have some could, stories to tell. It could be a sad podcast. It could be. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, all right. Thank you, Lee. All right, man.